the scripture 2, verses 8 through 23. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You are also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with his obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Thereby delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of vain empty notions of their unspiritual mind, ligaments and tendons grow with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. The word of the Lord. I imagine some of you um, had the experience yesterday of watching the royal wedding. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to the homily that was given by uh, Reverend Michael Curry, who's the head of the Episcopal Church. Um, I was tempted to just print out that sermon and preach it this morning, uh, but I decided probably there'd be some of you who would, who would recognize that and and realized that I had done that. So I, I'll preach my own sermon this morning. But as I was, as I was reflecting, I was like, you know, Pastor, Pastor Eric Kapoor, E.K., preached last Sunday on um, three words from Colossians, overflowing with gratitude. And so I decided to uh, step it up a little bit and do 360 words this Sunday. So we'll see how that goes. Robert Bella, he is a, um, or was a sociologist of religion at Berkeley, and in 1985, he and, a, and his team came out with a really what is, is, is known as a seminal work in the field of the sociology of religion uh, called Habits of the Heart. Uh, and in this book, there's a number of interviews with um, people describing sort of the state of spirituality and religion in the United States post-1950. And in this book... He interviews um, a gal named Sheila Larson, and this is what Sheila says. She says, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. Sheilaism, I love that. And Robert Bella is with his team. Um, explores this idea that this is a this is um, 
an idea that's rampant in our society. It's, uh, we, we see it all the time, uh, this idea that everyone kind of has their own take on the religious life, their own spirituality. And so Robert Bella sort of amusingly comments that this, uh, the idea of Sheilaism opens us up to the reality that there could be millions and millions of different spiritual paths if everyone just follows their own little voice. Uh, Robert Wolf now is also a sociologist of religion, and in 1998, he came out with a book, uh, uh, a really important book called After Heaven, in which he describes kind of the, the, you know, sort of in the same vein as Robert Bella, the state of affairs of spirituality and religion in the United States. And he says that we have moved as a culture uh, from, this, from this idea of, of dwelling to this idea of seeking that 50 or 100 years ago, uh, people primarily saw religion as something that was housed in an institution, um, in doctrine and dogma. Um, and that's where, you, that's where you accessed God. That's where you um, came to find fulfillment and happiness. But he says that in the last 50 years, we've moved from a religion of dwelling to a religion of seeking where people are seeking for their own spiritual truth, their own spiritual happiness and fulfillment. Here's a question. What makes for a fulfilled, happy, meaningful life? That's the question that Paul is getting at in the New Testament in this little letter, uh, the letter to the Colossians uh, in the New Testament that we've been moving through as a church. And in this passage in particular, in Colossians 2, Paul is addressing this idea that really there are three, he sees the world broken down into really three alternatives. That there's three ways that you can go about trying to achieve uh, a, a life of significance, a life of worth, a life of fulfillment, a life of happiness. And these are the, these are the three ways that he observes. He says, first, there's the idea of religion. It's what some of those sociologists I just mentioned, uh, this sort of old-time religion, the tradition of religion, uh, housed in an institution, um, something that you went and had access maybe through a priest or a pastor or through uh, the, 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 um, the practices of the church, um, or at least as, as some of us are used to. Then, then Paul actually, I think he's actually getting at another idea. He's saying there's also this there's another alternative, and it's sort of this idea of spirituality. It's this concept that maybe you've heard um, from friends, or maybe you even yourself this morning are saying, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a religious fanatic. I'm not really religious, but I am spiritual. And if you are, if you do fit that, and that's, a, that's a, an idea that you've had or a feeling that you feel, uh, we're glad that you're here this morning. Um, let me suggest that Paul says that those are two ways of approaching a happy and fulfilled life. But he says there's actually a third way, and it's the way of Jesus. It's the way of Christianity, which, as Paul sees it, is not, it's not the old traditional religion, nor is it some sort of new mystical spirituality. It's something entirely different. It's not, e it's not either one of those. It's an, something entirely new. It's something uh, totally different than religion and spirituality. And notice what Paul says. He's, he brings it out in verse 9. He says that the divine, God himself, the deity, 
is housed. He's located fully in Jesus. Um, So he sets up this contrast between old time, old traditional religion and new spirituality. Uh, And then there's this third way, Jesus, whom he says is God in the flesh. This is God come to us. God come to humanity. And that's where Paul believes you can find fulfillment and happiness and value and worth. So what Paul is describing here is really there are God substitutes. There are things that are other than Jesus Christ, religion and spirituality, and then there's Jesus, an entirely new way, a third way of doing life, of experiencing life, of, of getting to this idea of fullness and wholeness. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to focus on three, I want to ask and answer three questions of this passage in Colossians. And here are the three questions. First, why are these God's substitutes, if, if God is housed in Jesus, if he's fully bodily present in Jesus, then anything other than Jesus is a God substitute. Why are God's substitutes like religion and spirituality so captivating to us? Why are they so captivating? Second, what are the dangers of those God's substitutes? What are the dangers of living your life um, following religious practices or this kind of spiritual, mystical, searching after um, some kind of experience? And then third, what is the essence of Christianity? What's the essence of this third way, this new way in Jesus. So first, why are God's substitutes so captivating? Um, you know, as you read, as I read through Paul, what I often experience, I don't know if you've had this experience, but you, it's sort of like listening to one side of a conversation. As we're reading Paul, uh, we, we sort of have to piece together what exactly Paul was addressing, who exactly he's speaking to, and what were the challenges of his own culture uh, and the people that he was addressing. We're sort of piecing it together. And in this passage in particular, uh, and this is true elsewhere in the New Testament, um, there's really not any consensus uh, from the scholars over what exactly Paul is specifically trying to address. He gives us particular uh, clues uh, to what might have been the challenges in uh, the city of Colossae. But it's, there's really no consensus among scholarship. There's literally thousands of pages of material written on what Paul was addressing. But as I was reflecting on this passage this week, it seems to me that, that you could sort of boil them down to two fundamental ways of life. And those were the, those were the ideas that I brought up uh, just in the introduction to this sermon. This idea that one could be either religious or spiritual. One could pursue uh, let's call religion sort of moralism, this, this traditional conservative approach to fulfillment and happiness. And then maybe on the other extreme, sort of a more progressive idea of, um, of the self, of searching for an inner experience. Those are two approaches that I think, I think largely Paul is trying to get at here in Colossians 2. Two approaches to the fulfilled and happy life. Moralism on the one hand and mysticism on the other. So what is moralism? Well, look at verse 8, what Paul says in verse 8. He says, moralism is this, is this way of pursuing a fulfilled life that's based on human tradition. 
That's what he says if you drop down to verse 22 as well. He comes back to this idea. It's this idea that you can achieve a fulfilled and happy life through human commands and doctrine and teaching. Uh, things that are created by people. This is, the, this is largely, I think, the conservative approach to fulfillment, to finding happiness. If you follow the rules, if you abstain from the world, then you will have a fulfilled life. If you distance yourself from uh, the wrong kinds of people and put yourself in touch with the right kinds of people, uh, that's, that's a way to achieve fulfillment. But look at mysticism. If that's moralism on one hand, then there's mysticism on the other hand. That also comes out in verse 8, uh, where Paul says, um, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty, de empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world. That's this, mysticism is this idea that he's getting at with this language of elements of the world. You see it again in verse 20. In my mind, it's sort of, it's maybe more of what we might say is the more progressive approach to uh, the spiritual life. It's an approach to fulfillment that says, don't follow the rules, follow your heart. Uh, it, it doesn't say abstain from the world, it says actually abstain from rules. Uh, you are the captain of your fate, you are the captain of your soul. So if moralism is following the rules, keeping the rules... Uh, listening to the right kinds of things, associating with the right kinds of people, mysticism is the idea that says, uh, abstain from the rules, follow your heart, follow yourself. Now, here's the provocative thing that Paul, I think, is getting at, and he ties it very close together in verse 8. I think what he's fundamentally saying is this, these two approaches to the fulfilled life, moralism and mysticism, are actually two sides of the same coin. They're actually the same way of approaching and trying to achieve the fulfilled life. Although they look very differently on the surface, they're actually the exact same thing. What do I mean? How is that possible? Well, first, notice Paul says that they're the same in that they're both distinct from Jesus. Don't be led astray by the philosophy, the idea that um, the ideas that are based in human tradition, that are based in, in moralism, rather than Jesus. Don't base your life, don't be captivated by the things that are based in the elements of the world, on mystical experience, which he gets at, he describes later as sort of these ascetic practices and visionary experiences, rather than Jesus. Do you see the, do you see the, the uh, distinction that Paul is making? These, these two ways of approaching life, moralism and mysticism, are actually the same in that they're both distinct from Jesus. They're both different than Jesus. They're opposed to Jesus. But there's another way in which uh, both of these ways of, of, of the spiritual life are, are, are similar, are equal, are two sides of the same coin. Both of them... Both of them, at their very root, seek to substitute ourselves for God. Both moralism and mysticism seek to substitute ourself for God. And that means that both of them, both a conservative approach to religion and a progressive approach to religion, are both equally flawed. What do I mean that they're both, both of them are, are, are this idea that we substitute ourselves for God? Well, think about Think about old time, old traditional religion and moralism. 
This is what a, a moralist might say. If I abstain, if I obey, if I surround myself with the good people, the right people, the right media, uh, the right books, the right doctrine, the right church, the right political party, then I'll be okay. And you see, that's in Paul's mind, that's the equivalent of saying, I don't need God. By my own moral performance, I can experience a fulfilled life. It also, if you think about it, a moralist, um, somebody who's traditionally religious, actually seeks to minimize sin. They actually seek to minimize their distance and separation from a holy God. Where is that in Colossians 2? Well, Paul gets at it in this language of circumcision. Circumcision was a practice in the Old Testament uh, that involved uh, right, the cutting away of, of human flesh. And it was a, it was a small uh, spiritual medical procedure that was done um, that, was, that was seen to bring you closer to God in some ways. That if you did this procedure, if you practiced this ritual, if you did this small thing, it would bring you closer to God. It would include you in the people of God. And so a traditional religionist, a traditional moralist would say, it's these li- I just need a little, a little tweak. I just need a little help from God. I just need something like circumcision where Paul says, no, you need, you need a whole new person. That's what he goes on to say. You need a whole new life. So a moralist actually, ironically, minimizes sin, minimizes their own sin, thinks that they don't need God, but by their moral performance, they can experience the fulfilled life. But what about a spiritual mystic, a progressive uh, person who follows their own heart? They say, if I abstain from the rules, if I follow my inner voice, my own dreams, then I'll be okay. Then I'll experience fulfillment and happiness. So if religion says, I will be my own savior by morally outperforming everyone else, then the mystic, the spiritualist says, I will be my own Lord. I will be my own king by following my own will. Do you see that? Do you see how both moralists and mystics actually say, both of them say, I don't, I don't need God as savior or as king, as savior or as Lord. That's what Paul, I think, is getting at when he says, um, if you follow this kind of philosophy, you're not holding fast to the head. A spiritualist, a mystic says, why would I want a head? Why would I want somebody who's governing my life, who's controlling my life, who's laying down rules for my life, who's telling me what their will is for my life? That's what the secular person says as well. I don't I don't need a God. Why would I need a God? I'll follow my heart. I'll follow my own will. I'll follow my own destiny. So you see, moralists and mystics are actually, they're really the same thing fundamentally at bottom. They look differently, but they're fundamentally the same way of questioning God's sufficiency, his competency, his ability, and his sovereignty. And Paul wants us to be aware of this. He wants us not to be captivated by it because he says, it's, it's, it's this idea that comes, that's loud and clear in the New Testament, that the things that you follow, the things that you give your heart to, whether it's moralism or some sort of chasing after a spiritual experience, those things will not just captivate you, but they will enslave you. 
you will become captive to those things. They will end up running your life, and they will end up ruining your life. So that's, that's, what, that's, that's why these God substitutes, moralism and mysticism, are actually so captivating to us. Because at the root, because at our very heart, we all have this disease that tells us that we can substitute ourselves for God. And Paul says that that will end up not, not achieving fulfillment in your life. It will actually ruin your life. So that brings us to the second question. What are the dangers? What are the dangers that I think Paul is laying out here of these God substitutes of, of moralism and rule following uh, and mysticism and following your heart? Well, there are three, I think, destructive tendencies uh, that if you, if you follow this path of moralism or mysticism, there are three destructive tendencies when you substitute yourself for God. Uh, and they come through in our relationship with God, with other people, and then with ourself. So let's look at the three of those. Uh, first, God's substitutes are destructive to your relationship with God. Uh, how, is that, how is that so? Well, think about, think about a moralist. They, uh, somebody who's, who follows the rules, who keeps the rules. They are seeking to uh, control God by their own moral performance. They're seeking to do things to get God indebted, indebted to them. So there's, they're really seeking, at the end of the day, to control God through their own religious performance. Controlling God rather than cherishing God. They delight in practices rather than a person. They're also destructive in our relationship with God in that they seek to try God try him out, use him as a supplement rather than trust him. I haven't been in ministry long, but I've been in ministry long enough to sit with people, to sit across from people, and have them describe their life to me, and have them questioning how God is not meeting their expectations, how following God is not, uh, is not fulfilling to them. How following God is inconvenient to their life. And whenever I hear that, I think, uh, first of all, about my own heart and how that's true of myself. But I also think to myself, this is, a, this is, exactly, this is exactly the kind of mind, the kind of heart that says, I'll, I'll try God. I'm willing to supplement him to my life, but I'm not willing to trust him with my life. God's substitutes are destructive to our relationship with God. It also leads us to ignore God rather than thank God. Think about someone who says, uh, I, why would I need a head? Why would I need the head of every ruler and authority over my life? That sounds inconvenient. It sounds frustrating. It sounds dull. Uh, I, why, don't I, why don't I pursue my own dreams, follow my own heart? God substitutes tend to... to to lead us to ignore God rather than thank God. Paul in Colossians says that Jesus is the head of every ruler and authority. Earlier in Colossians 1, he said that Jesus is the maker and creator of everything, that every breath that we take is a gift from him, that he's designed your life, that he's created you, that he's brought you to this point in your life and giving you everything that you have. 
And so if you're, if you're a moralist that says, I'll, I'll just use God as a supplement to my moral performance, or a mystic who says, I don't, I'll follow my heart, either one, you're ignoring God rather than thanking God. You're guilty of the biggest cosmic plagiarism in the universe because God has given you all of this, your life, your breath, everything that you have, and you've chosen to ignore him rather than thank him. You've said, I don't, I don't need a head. Well, God's substitutes are also destructive to our relationship with other people. Look at the language that Paul uses multiple times in this passage in Colossians 2. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you. Let no one condemn you. Let no one disqualify you. Uh, Why do you submit? Why are you oppressed by rules and regulations made by people? Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying that there's there's a... There's a tendency when you substitute God for moralism or spiritual experience, there's a tendency in which you then tend to break down human community by feeling superior, by elevating yourself. And that leads you to uh, a mindset of, of, of judgment, of feeling superior to other people, of looking down on other people. You tend to disqualify those who are different who act differently, who behave differently, who think differently, who vote differently. You tend to set up these rules and regulations or these certain experiences that people need to have in order to be fully included, fully immersed into the fulfilled and happy life. And we do this as a culture in fascinating ways. I was reflecting this week about an article I read several years ago by Mary Eberstadt, who is a social commentator and journalist. And she wrote an article a couple of years ago called, Is Food the New Sex? It's a fascinating article. You can find it online. Uh, But in this article, she talks about um, what happens when you're living in a culture where, on the one hand, you can have as much sex as you want, and you can also have as much food as you want. Never in human history have those two things been true But in our time and place, they're true. You can have as much sex as you want and as much food as you want. And uh, what happens in a culture that that where that is available? And she does this thought experiment. She says, imagine uh, a 1950s housewife um, living in the United States, um, and imagine her granddaughter living two generations later. Uh, You know, someone who would be uh, you know our age and living living her life now. She says, she does this thought experiment. She says, imagine these two different women. Uh, let's call the first one uh, the, the, the 50s housewife, Betty, and the, young, the granddaughter, Jennifer. Imagine Betty for a moment, this 50s housewife. She, she's living her life, and she has very conservat- a very conservative approach to sexuality. Uh, sexuality, it was, uh, she believes, is built for um, expanding human community for monogamous relationships, for committed relationships, something that's to be done in the protection of a committed covenantal relationship. Um, But, uh, and that's something that's very, very conservative, but she has almost a a sort of a, a liberal approach to food. She'll eat anything. She'll eat red meat. She has flour and dairy products in her house. Uh, she lives by this idea that, um, right, you, you um, eat everything off your plate because she had parents that lived through the Great Depression and they were adamant about you eat whatever's put before you. Well, then 
transitioned two generations later to her granddaughter, Jennifer. Jennifer, um, she really has no rules when it comes to sexuality, or at least she's not going to impose her views of sexuality on other, on other people. So if you want to practice certain behaviors uh, in regards to sexuality, um, that's fine. She won't, um, she won't press you on that. You can live your life according to your own dictates. But then when it comes to food, man, she buys organic. She's very morally consistent on um, what can and cannot be eaten, um, about the humane treatment of animals, about where our food comes from and whether it's uh, locally sourced and whether the, the growers and the, um, the people that harvest the food are treated well and humanely. She has lots of rules and regulations. She's very conservative about food. And Mary Eberstadt says this, it's a it's, it's compelling argument. She says, look at, look at these two ways of life. Uh, food and sex, we both, we both um, depending on our time and place and culture, set up these regulations, which says you must do this and you cannot do this, and we're living in a time and place in which food and drink, there's a bunch of rules and regulations that you must follow if, if you're going to be healthy, if you're going to be fulfilled, if you're going to treat um, the world um, in, in a right and fair way. And those are all good things. But what she's saying is there's often a, a, a tendency in our culture to then impose those on everyone else to make these moral standards that are, are really relatively new. Um, whether they're good or not, they're relatively new. And then we disqualify, we condemn, we judge other people. I'm not saying that you shouldn't buy organic. I'm just saying we still do this. It was true in Paul's day. Let no one judge you by food or drink. This is, this is 2018, Southern California. You are judged by what you eat and drink. How do we do this? How does, how does moralism and mysticism, uh, it, it boils down to this. How does it destroy human community and human relationships? Ask yourself if this is you this morning. Are you the kind of person who scoffs, who looks with disdain at other people, people that eat differently than you, that vote differently than you, that go to a different church than you? Or are you gracious? Are you compassionate? Are you kind to those who believe or behave differently? See, both a, both a moralist and a mystic, both a moralist and a mystic will both say, there are these things that you need to follow, things that you need to do to achieve higher consciousness or access the divine or achieve a fulfilled and happy life. And at the end of the day, it's all about your performance. It's all about something that you are doing. And that's ultimately, thirdly, destructive to yourself. It's destructive to who you are. Paul is saying that this idea that you can do it yourself, that by your own actions, by your own thinking, by your own behavior, by your own experience, you can achieve a fulfilled life, it will not work, Paul says. Following your heart will not work. Listening to that inner voice will not lead you to success or fulfillment or happiness. Why? First, because following your desires are... It's an inconsistent way of living. Imagine for a moment if you have uh, 
because our desires are not arranged in a, in a logical way. Imagine for a moment you, you're pursuing a career, but you're also pursuing someone that you love. And those two things are, are in conflict. You can't achieve, you can't achieve the, the, the relationship that you want unless you sacrifice your career. And you can't achieve the career that you want unless you sacrifice this committed relationship. And you have these competing desires. How do you know which one is the right one? How do you know which one is the best one to follow? Our desires are, they're inconsistent. They're in, often incompatible with one another. And following the rules won't work because the rules can't curb your self-indulgence. That's, that's what Paul says at the end of the passage. Following these rules, living a life that's based and rooted in moral performance won't work because it will not curb your self-indulgence. We are all made to indulge, to desire, to love. Our hearts are, are designed that way. And Paul is saying that unless you get at what your heart desires, what it's captivated by, what it's compelled by, what it thinks is beautiful, unless you get at that, no rule is going to change that. Your heart is constantly desiring, it's constantly enjoying things. That's what it's made to do. It's, it's built to function that way. You will constantly be trying to fulfill and fill your life with something. And rules won't stop that. So moralism and mysticism, they're destructive to your relationship with God. They're destructive to human community, human relationships. And they're destructive to yourself. What's the solution? Well, the solution is Paul's third way. It's the way of Christianity. It's the way of Jesus. And he gets at this idea. What is he explains here in profound and moving ways the essence of Christianity in this passage. He brings together so many threads from the entire scripture to captivate your heart, to compel you to believe, to say, this is the Jesus that you can follow, that you can root your life in. And he does that, I think, in three ways. First, he says, he, he uses this, this doctrine, this teaching of the incarnation. That Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, in the person of Jesus was housed God himself. That the entire fullness of God, the divine, was located in a person. It wasn't located in a temple. It wasn't located in in. in in rules. It wasn't located in an institution. It was located in Jesus. He is the fullness of God. And as you're, as you're connected to him and his life and his experience, that's where you achieve fullness. That's how you access fulfillment. That's how you reach this longing that you all, we all share. This longing to enjoy, to delight, to cherish. God says, it's found in Jesus. It's found in my son. It's found in the incarnation. Paul also goes on to say, what is the essence of Christianity? It's, it's incarnation. It's God come to you. It's not you seeking God. It's not you working your way up to God. It's God meeting you. It's God seeking you in the incarnation. But it's also God liberating you. It's God freeing you. It's God triumphing over the hosts of darkness and evil. And in our modern world, it's, um, you know, I included this quote by uh, a writer whom I, whom I love, Flannery O'Connor, uh, in the reflection page. And 
she talks there about a personal devil, about these personal forces of evil. And in our modern world, in a, in a world of, of texting and smartphones and technology and robotics and artificial intelligence, how in the world can you posit that there are these rulers and authorities, this, this devil, this manifestation of evil? But that's what Paul says. He says there is this embodiment of evil. These spiritual forces in the world that bring about harm and destruction. They're things that cause fear in our hearts. Don't you experience this? Don't you see headlines of school shootings? Of volcanoes erupting? Of structural evil in the world? of sitting in the doctor's office and fearing that diagnosis, of thinking about a committed relationship and the, the possibility that you may lose that to divorce or death, or even this own sense that I think we all share, this fear of condemnation, this fear of judgment that I haven't lived up to my own standards to my own demands, to my own obligations. We all share demands and obligations, relational, social, financial. They're demands that press in on our life. And Paul is saying, when you encounter God, you encounter someone who has also placed a demand on you. And none of us have met that obligation. And we all, sh we all share deep down this fear that we will be disqualified, that we will be condemned, that we will be judged. And you know what Paul says? Paul says that Jesus on the cross, he extinguished the powers of evil. He exhausted the powers of evil at the cross. That, in, that at the cross where Jesus received what, he, what Paul calls here, his own circumcision, his own cutting off and disqualification, his own condemnation, his own judgment, that on the cross, Jesus was bearing that for you. That he was being cut off for you, that he was being disqualified for you, that he did not just endure the powers of evil, but he destroyed the powers of evil. He destroyed the idea of condemnation of judgment, of disqualification. And that's the last, that's the last thing that I'll close with here, that the, at the, that the heart of Christianity is this idea that God has met you in the incarnation. He sought after you. You don't need to seek him. He's come to find you. And he's come to find you to liberate you. To win a victory for you, and he's come ultimately to substitute himself for you. The essence of Christianity is substitution. Think about it this way. Sin, sin ultimately, whether you're a moralist or a mystic, is the idea that you're substituting yourself for God. Jesus comes, God comes in the flesh and says, I'm going to substitute myself for you. A moralist says, God, you owe me my life. A mystic says, my life is my own. And Jesus says, I will give my life for you. I will give my life for you.
on a Saturday night in 1998, um, a, a young woman named Azita was invited to go dancing. And she instead decided to go for a run. And as she was jogging in the foothills just north of Pasadena, um, one of her dogs, she was out with her dogs, uh, one of her dogs, Tango, stopped to smell and scratch at the dirt. And as, as Azita went to go inspect this area where her dog was uh, scratching and digging up the dirt, to her horror, she found two small feet protruding from the dirt. And that's when she heard the infant cry. And as she started digging, uh, she found a baby wrapped in a blue towel, still breathing. And she pulled this baby up from the dirt. She pulled this child up from the dirt and began to dig away the dirt from, her, from this child's nose and from its mouth so that it could breathe. This child was suffering from extreme hypothermia. And as she's carrying this baby, she's dialing 911. She had been disconnected multiple times before a dispatch was sent out to rescue this child. She said this to this, this young child. She said, please don't die. I will never leave you. I love you. The LA Times just ran a story that just recently, 20 years later, this young baby has grown into a, a healthy, strong young man named Michael. And the, this the, Azita, his, his, his rescuer and Michael were reunited for the first time. He never knew. He never knew this story of his life. That he had been pulled out of the dirt, pulled out of death itself, and literally had life breathed into him. There's a passage in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 16 where, where God says, I found you in the dirt. I found you with your umbilical cord still connected to your body, writhing in the mud. And I came and I had compassion on you. And I rescued you. And I pulled you out of the dirt. I was thinking of Azita's, Azita's beautiful example. How moving is that? that this woman finds this child and rescues, gives life to this child. And I was thinking about the beauty of Christianity, that in, in the gospel, what you see, what Paul describes here, is imagine for a moment Jesus finding you, and he finds you writhing in the dirt, drowning. He doesn't just pull you out of the dirt. What Paul says is, he comes and he dies with you. Jesus died with you. He went down into the grave. He died the death that I deserved, that you deserved. And when he was resurrected to vindicated life, when he triumphed over the tomb and evil and sin itself, he brought your life with him. He, gave, he made you alive. Do you see that? Do you see how much you're loved? That if a God like that did that for you, he will never leave you. He will never hold back anything that's good for you. That his way is the way to fulfillment. It's the way to happiness. Sometimes it looks like Jesus dying on a cross, but Paul says that's actually victory. 
That was triumph. That was the way that the powers of hell, the powers of evil were exhausted and done away with. Let me close here. What does that mean? It means, it means that everything is transformed. It means three things. God is not a demander. He's not someone who just comes with rules and regulations and says, follow me and get with the program. He's a rescuer. He's a seeker of dead and dying people. He's a liberator. He's an adopter who brings, who rescues you and then brings you into his family. That transforms your relationship with God. It also transforms your relationship with other people. If God has extinguished and canceled and taken your debt and nailed it to the cross so that you bear it no more, then what does that mean for our relationships? How dare I obligate people? How dare I hold a weight over others that I could not bear myself? It frees me to love. It frees me to say, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, that we're all equal. That if I didn't live up to God's expectations, why should I impose obligations and demands on other people that they can't live up to? It also transforms your relationship with yourself. Think about Michael Whitaker, a young child who was pulled out of the dirt in Pasadena with his umbilical cord still attached. And to hear the words from someone else that said, I'll never leave you. I love you. You're wanted. You're the object of my affection. God says that to you this morning in Jesus. That's good news. Amen. Father, thank you. What, what more can we say? Thank you. Thank you for making us alive with Jesus when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Thank you for nailing the record of debt that stood against us. Thank you for nailing it to the cross, for providing a substitute, God in the flesh, who bore the weight of our sin and our guilt and our shame and the secrets that we all bear so that we could be set free. Thank you for on the cross dispelling and disarming and disrobing and shaming the powers of evil so that we can follow in the way of your redemptive love so that our hearts can be captivated and filled by the beauty and truth and goodness of the gospel. Fill our hearts this morning with the beauty of Jesus, with the goodness of Jesus, with the power of Jesus. And may that lead us to praise and thanksgiving and gratitude and love of not only you, but now our neighbor. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.